You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Training. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and, well, no Amanda right now. She's putting the baby to sleep for right now. And so we will have her back here shortly because baby decided at the last minute that her plans were not my plans. And I'm learning the hard way that uh, sometimes I just have to listen to her her plans because, yeah, she wins. Most of the time she wins. So, guys, today we're bringing to you the host of the the Think Unbroken podcast, Michael Unbroken. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm so good, my man. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Like I mentioned before, I'm fighting through this whole COVID fog. So for all the listeners, if you hear me sounding a little bit out of it today, it's probably because I am just a little bit. So we brought you on here today because we stumbled across each other somewhere online in the world. And I thought, hey, this dude has a um, this dude has a really unique foster care story because you were not a foster parent and you were not a foster child. You lived in foster homes though. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my, and I like to say this one day I would like to be a foster parent. It is on my to-do list. Um, and that comes from witnessing probably the most horrific circumstances being in foster care homes as you know, someone who my, my mother was a drug addict and alcoholic and my, my stepfather was a super abusive guy and an over the road trucker. And sometimes they would just disappear. And, um, we would, my brothers and I would get pawned off with people. And I mean, at one point I counted, like we lived with over 30 different families in the course of three years, as my mom was in and out of rehab, my stepfather was, I don't know, wherever he was. And some of those people were from the church. Some of those people were family members. Some of those people were like literally strangers or friends. And at one point when um, my, my stepfather's mother was a foster care parent and uh, arguably one of the worst human beings I've ever known. And to be in those situations and, and watch the abuse in those homes was uh, incredibly detrimental to me. And, you know, having being abused in my own home, that carries weight, obviously, but there are things about those experiences and being in homes where you see all these kids who they just want, they need, they desperately ha- have the the need to have someone take care of them. And that to be the polar opposite is, um, is painful, you know, and there's, there's stories about that time in my life where, you know, I, they'll never see the light of day because they're so dark and so violent. Um, and so growing up and experiencing that and always being in those homes and, but also seeing like the, the good sides of it too. And some really incredible people 
um, you know, it just showed me and taught me so much about the human experience and how, you know, for as many good people there are, there are people who are miseducated or ill-informed who have not stepped into healing journeys for themselves. And thus that carries, you know, ramifications for those around them. So, you know, it's, um, while I did not grow up in it exclusively, I was around it enough that it impacted my life. Well, you know, it sounds like your story has a lot of similarities with Amanda's story. She grew up in a home where she should have been in foster care. Uh, there was a lot of drug abuse and, and addiction in her home as well. And, and so that's part of the reason why why we stepped into this whole world to begin with, because it was something that she always said, I will never do to me or do to, to my kids what was done to me. I, I'll never mm-hmm. do that. And it sounds like you're kind of in a similar position. You you have something there to to hand out because because of what was given to you as a young kid. How, how old were you as you, as you experienced these? Yeah, I mean, anywhere from six years old until 12, really, um, that was kind of the window. So, you know, but predominantly, I would say, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, that's kind of where it was really happening. Okay. Okay. So you were definitely old enough to understand what was going on and to be really, really heavily affected by it. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, what's interesting is like in real time, understanding it kind of meant looking at all the things happening and just going, oh, this is just life. And I think that's one of the really unfortunate parts about abuse in general is if you don't know anything different, then you accept that to be just how it is. And going through those experiences and learning that way, um, you know, carried a lot of weight, carried a lot of pain. It carried a lot of having to get to this place where I could over time learn how to trust people and be connected to people and, and have real conversation and, you know, um, anything from intimacy to human connection. And, and that has just taken a tremendous amount of work, effort and energy. Oh, I believe that. I believe that because, and that's really part of the question that I want to, I want to point at is you were six to 12 years old experiencing all this. And so at 12 years old, obviously, like most of us, you were, you were just a genius teenager coming into the teen years and just knew that you had to fix this stuff, right? You had to, you had to do the work to to fix it. And you, you had that all figured out at a young age, right? Yeah, of course. Right. And everything was better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But that's, that's a, that's a, tough time in life. You know, the teenage years are hard, especially for a kid who's been put through some level of trauma, you know, any level of trauma, but it sounds like you saw a pretty significant level of that. So what was, what was your catalyst to, to start seeing that, that there was something different out there and that you wanted a part of it? Yeah. I mean, that took a very long time, you know, at, at four years old, my mother cut off my right index finger. You know, we were constantly homeless. We were getting evicted. Um, there were drugs everywhere, alcoholism. Um, you know, I started going to AA with my mom at like seven years old. She would take me and my brothers to these meetings, right? And and I spent so much time as a child being homeless and living with all these different families um, that I, I learned how to dissociate. And that became this really important survival mechanism, right? I, I learned how to turn off. I learned how to be robotic uh, because if I didn't, uh, then I would feel so much more pain and suffering. And it's very common for children who have traumatic experiences to dissociate. 
And so I'm in this position where I'm at 12 years old and I'd been living by myself in an abandoned house for a while and like showering at school, stealing food to survive. My mom was in some rehab. She had just like literally disappeared. And this was my, my stepfather's mother's old house, <clears throat> but we, there was no electricity. There was no running water. And, you know, it was this like blistering hot Indiana summer. And my, my grandmother had just come by to check on us because it'd been a couple of months and she decided to take me obviously doing what I think any responsible person would do. And she actually ended up adopting me. And like, you would think that would be like this godsend, right? But it wasn't because I'm biracial and black and white. And my grandmother's a super old racist white lady from a town in Tennessee you never heard of. Right. So now you insert this identity crisis on top of all the rest of the chaos. And so at 12 years old, I just, I started getting high every day. Like I was smoking weed as, as soon as I woke up in the morning, I was popping pills. I was drinking. I mean, I got drunk for the first time at 13 years old. And by the time I was 15, I got expelled for selling drugs. And I'm in this position in my life where I'm like, running the streets, breaking in houses, stealing cars, hurting people, getting shot at by the cops, just like really crazy stuff. And luckily I got put into this last chance program and I still did not graduate high school on time. And basically they just handed me the diploma and like, dude, you just got to get out of here. You're chaotic. You're crazy. Like we just can't even. Right. And, and that was kind of the window, right? You asked me kind of what, what sparked things. And it, it didn't spark Think Unbroken yet. That'd be another 10 years away. But in that moment, it was looking at life and going, wait a second, maybe there's another way to do this. And I decided that what I wanted to do was make $100,000 a year, but do it legally. And that felt really, really important to me because as of today, my three childhood best friends have been murdered. I got family in prison for life. I've been in handcuffs. Like I knew the path that I was going, but that was indicative of my community, right? My, my, I got family in prison. We go visit them in jail all the time. Like it was like, it was almost expected it was going to happen. Right. And, and so I made that declaration. I started learning skills and eventually I get to that place where I start making that hundred thousand dollars a year. I land a job with a, a fortune 10 company with no high school diploma and no college education. And I start doing it. And that just made my life so much worse. Right. And I found myself by the time I was 26, I was 350 pounds, smoking two packs a day, drinking myself to sleep. And that's when I attempted suicide. I was just done, man. I was like, money was supposed to solve all these things. And it didn't, it didn't do anything. And the next day I'm, I'm laying in bed it's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm smoking a joint, eating chocolate cake and watching the CrossFit games. Like if that's not rock bottom, I, I literally don't know what is. <laughs> and, and I, for whatever reason, I got up and I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and, you know, I didn't recognize the face. I was so dissociated, but I remember being eight years old and the water company came and turned our water off just hot Indiana, August summer day. They always were turning our water off or turning the electricity off or turning off the heat in the winter. And I went to the backyard and took this little blue bucket and I walked across the street to our neighbor's house. And for the first time I stole water. And I remember being like, all right, when I'm a grown up, this isn't going to be my life. 
And it wasn't from a financial aspect, but it was because I was still that hurt, lost little boy. And as I was looking at myself in the mirror, I asked myself, what are you willing to do to have the life that you want to have? And the answer was no excuses, just results. And 11 years later, here I am talking to you. And in that process was literally spending every penny I had going to therapy, group therapy, men's group therapy, trauma therapy, CBT, EMDR, going and reading all the books about trauma. I have over 30 certifications in trauma education. I have spent a tremendous amount of time and effort in personal development, learning, growing, changing, healing, trying to understand myself, my identity, who I am. And, you know, about six years ago, I was just writing blogs. I was just sharing information and people started reaching out and being like, Hey, that thing you posted changed my life or that thing you posted saved my life. And then it turned into think unbroken. And that turned into a couple of books and speaking around the world and in front of these big stages and, and podcast and the whole nine. And, and that all is because I recognized something really important. It was like, I don't want another child to have to go through what I went through. And so if we can do a twofold approach to educating adults about how to change their understanding of who they are and what they're capable of in the world and give children access to information that can impact them with a growth mindset from a young age, ultimately I can reach my goal of ending generational trauma in my lifetime. And so that's how I got to where I am. My goodness. <laughs> that's, that is a mighty, a mighty lofty goal for sure. Uh, the one question I, I do want to touch on, because you mentioned it at the beginning of your story, being biracial and being raised by a, a racist older white lady from a place in Tennessee that I wouldn't know, you might be surprised because I came from one of those little places in Tennessee that you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, it was only 30 miles outside of Nashville. But as I recall, back in 1980-something, when you got to the western edge of Nashville, and you left the city limits, you left the buildings, and it went to trees, and you drove for 30 or 40 minutes to get to the place where I lived. It was out there. I never mm. met my neighbors. Um, there was a sawmill you could hear sometimes running, and that was it. So, yeah, we, we lived out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I, I'm not mixed, ethnically speaking. Um, I, well, actually, according to 23andMe, which is the only way I really know any kind of truth here, I am 100% mixed. There's nothing in, that, that's not in me, I don't think. Um, I, I have a bit of an ethnic look, I'm told, by lots and lots of people. And as a young kid in, in uh, the real Tennessee at a young age, racism was real back in the 80s. Um, and I didn't understand it. But that was something that, that I experienced a lot of in my childhood. And then we moved to, to Missouri when we, we came back because we lived down there with my grandfather who had, uh, who had cancer. And we stayed with him and took care of him until he passed. And then we came back and it took a lot of years for me to realize just how much that, that whole race piece really affected my life. Because I have a mom who is very obviously white and a dad who's pretty obviously white as well. And I have one sibling that looks just like the two of them. I have two other siblings, um, three of us who look, all look darker for whatever reason, something came out in the genetics. I don't know what it is, but, but we've experienced that and lived that with that. And fortunately for us, you know, everybody has their level of trauma. They live in life, but it sounds like you had a decent amount of trauma to deal with on top of some of that racism coming out in your world. So how did you overcome that part? Cause you mentioned your identity a lot that 
that's a huge part of it. I mean, that's part of who you are. And so how did you overcome that piece in your life, especially as I'm going to guess an angry young man? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'd always been exposed to racism, um, you know, growing up in Indiana for one, which is an incredibly racist place, um, and getting it from both sides. Look, I mean, it's the white kids didn't like me because I was black. The black kids didn't like me because I was white. I didn't fit in anywhere. And plus I was the kid who smelled like piss because I wet the bed and I was wearing clothes from the Goodwill or the shelter and I could never afford the school lunch or we had the WIC card thing and the whole nine. So, I mean, it was always something, right? And, and I was super violent as a kid too, because, you know, you learn violence at home. That's how you communicate with kids at school. And so that, that made me ostracized even more. And, you know, growing up, my, my grandmother, when she would have me, you know, she would scream at the most racist stuff out the car window at people, right? Or she would belittle my mother for having, uh, you know, having interracial kids or dating a black man or a Mexican man or whomever it might be. And like, I would always bear witness to those things. So it was always kind of right there. It was never, it was never obtuse. It was like right there. Um, and, and so like, as I headed into this phase where being 12, 13 years old, you're starting to try to figure out who you are. Um, it was super difficult for me, super difficult because like you still don't really have control as a kid, obviously. And, and my grandmother would take me to go get like a haircut at great clips and I'd come out with like a white boy haircut. And like, I don't have white boy hair, you know what I'm saying? And that to me, the way she dressed me, the way she made us talk, the way that the music we could or could not listen to. Like, I remember one time I got uh, a Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff cassette tape, right? Age myself a little bit here. And, um, and my mom like broke it in half, right? Cause she was like, you can't listen to that. And it, and it was so crazy. And so by the time I'm 12, 13 years old, my, my grandmother was like, she was like, you can't let black people in my house. Like none of my friends of color were allowed to come in our house. And I was not allowed to listen to rap music and I was not allowed to do a lot of things. Now, what cares the reality, Jason? I did them anyway. Cause I was like, fuck it. Like I'm going to live my life. And that created massive turmoil between her and I, you know, and everyone around in our family. And by the time I'm in high school, because I am selling drugs and breaking into houses and stealing cars and stuff like that. And, you know, she was medically retired and we were living on her, her pension and stuff. And that wasn't enough. You know what I'm saying? Like it just wasn't. So we would have, I had to do what I had to do. And, you know, she would, she would start calling me racial epitaphs and she would start looking at me in this way. And, 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 and I started moving more and more towards trying to figure out who I was in terms of a, a race identity. And so it was doing all the things opposite. She said for me not to do, even though like always that didn't feel true of who I am, you know what I'm saying? And so I found myself just combating her at every single aspect and my family, right. And my mother and everyone around me, you know, because again, the black kids didn't like me because I was black because I was white. The white kids didn't like me because I was black. And so I was just constantly in this identity crisis about race. And what happened was probably at around 26, so about 11 years ago now, I was sitting down one day and I was just thinking about this, right? What we're talking about right now and just being like, you know what? Fuck it, man. 
I'm done. I'm done trying to be anybody other than who I am. And, you know, it was incredible to watch the people I thought were my friends start to disappear. And the connection I had with other people start to change. And today feeling incredibly confident about who I am um, being biracial. Like I'm not identifying as black. I'm not identifying as white. I'm fucking biracial, period. And so I'll correct people too. Right. Cause the, the easy place to go is people go, Oh yeah. What's it like growing up black? I'm like, I'm not I'm like, you got it twisted. That ain't me. And so that, that has just come with taking ownership over the reality of my life. And that was one of the most incredible and uncomfortable experiences ever, because I think what, what people really have to understand, and this has been sitting with me a lot over the course of probably the last six months childhood trauma isn't like just abuse, right? I think it's the theft of identity and, and I think healing it honestly. And, and I, of course there's a million ways you can look at what that means, but I've come to really sit with this idea that healing trauma is, is so much about building the identity of the person that you believe you are. And so like today sitting here with you, like, this is who I am hundred percent through and through no bullshit. And that just has taken a tremendous amount of effort. Well, you mentioned something else in the beginning of this and the, the word always catches my ear when it's used because one of our kids, um, ironically, he's also mixed, uh, but he deals with a lot of dissociation and we knew we, he had some struggles and we'd, we'd got him into a therapist and we're, we've been talking a lot about the dissociation in his life. And then, the, the therapist gave us a, it was a survey from my wife and I each to fill out about him and how he handles struggles and things like that. And then she gave us each a, a form to fill out about ourselves. And we filled them both out and turned them in. And when, and, uh, when we had a meeting and, and she reads through it and she goes, and what'd you think about this? And I looked at her and I said, I don't like your survey. Why are you telling a story about me over here? Like I, I never understood that there are, there are parts of my life that, that have created a healthy level, well, not a healthy, an unhealthy level of dissociation as well. It's something that, that me and, and my little guy both um, deal with a lot in our lives. And so I'm curious just seeing how that, how that affects his life from my perspective and also looking back and seeing how it's affected so much of my own life, being having no clue that that was actually a thing. You know, how, how have you worked through that dissociation and be able, been able to, to kind of re, um, reintegrate yourself without having to run from those places inside and hide from them? Yeah. I mean, that's a phenomenal question. Uh, brutal honesty. Like, like really, I know that's probably not the answer you expected, but seriously. And, and what I mean by that is honoring my truth about everything all the time. And, and I have become so much an advocate of this idea of doing what you want because it feels true to you and not doing what you want because it feels true to you. Right. And, and now look, that's, that's the simplified way. The, the longer version of this is, you know, quarter million dollars in therapy and hundreds and thousands of hours, like almost probably literally of just in enveloping myself in education to understand the biological experiences that we're having and recognizing that dissociation is an autonomic part of the human experience to create and invoke a level of safety. And, and that here's what's crazy, Jason, is that serves you for a really long time. And then one day it doesn't anymore. 
And when it doesn't, that's when you, that's when I started to realize that the negative impact that it was having on my life was destroying everything around me. And so in that, uh, the, the, the steps I took at first, because I didn't know that word, right. I, I wasn't familiar. I, I did not have a way to define what it felt like to just be watching my life happening around me all the time. And it felt like not being out in control. And so in that, it, it really started with, I noticed the feeling of self probably coming through the most when I first began meditating and doing yoga 10 years ago. And it was really being in yoga where I started to feel my body. And, you know, because I, I had this dissociation from pain, you know, being injured, being hurt all the time, having my finger cut off, you know, broken feet and ankles and not being taken to the doctor. And, you know, I remember one time I was, I was probably like eight. I rolled off a bunk bed off the top bunk and smashed my head on the bottom rail. Nobody took me to the doctor, right? I couldn't, I still have a neck problem. I couldn't move my neck for like three weeks. And even all the crying, all the pain, nobody took me to the doctor. And so you learn how to turn off and, and turning back on or integrating for me came, came in noticing my body, the sensation doing body scan meditation, like really focusing on whether it be breathing or feeling my toes or my fingers or meditating and getting into journaling, right? Just writing the sensations, the feelings, the emotions, but also having a place to process it because like, you know, I think I, I, I know there is definitely cause for having trained therapists who can help you work through those things and understand the, the meaning causation and correlation of those experiences. And I found that one of the really fascinating parts of this was being, you know, in, in EMDR and, and doing these incredible exercises and also being able to go and sit even in men's group therapy and having these conversations and just recognizing, oh, wow, that thing that happened was really messed up. Maybe you should be pissed off about it and learning how to tap into my emotional capacity. I mean, there was a 15 year period where I didn't cry 15 years, not a tear. And that was through the death of my grandmother, the death of my mother, the murder of my friends. It was through lost relationships and broken hearts and, you know, losing careers and the whole nine, never a tear. Right. And that's because I was so dissociated. How do you cry when you can't be inside your body? And now it's like, man, there's Adidas commercial with this old dude escaping a nursing home and running. And I'm just like balling. I'm sitting there watching it on the couch. You know what I mean? And so that I, I think it comes with time and patience, but also practice and, and probably predominantly a tremendous amount of vulnerability with yourself first. And I think that's the hardest thing. And that, I mean, even to this day, I think it's something I'll always be working on. And I think it's something that a lot of parents don't know that word either. And a lot of, you know, foster parents, adoptive parents, or just biological parents in general see and don't understand. What would you, what would you say to the, those parents to look out for and, and what to do for kids who are, who are in that spot? Because some of these kids come to us with unknown problems in their history. You know, we get a short a really short little story about what may or may not be coming at us, but we understand what 
the caseworker thinks they understand from what they've heard from some people. So we have a complete, completely incomplete picture about what we're dealing with. And so if we see some of these things in these kids, what do you think would have helped you a lot if somebody would have done for you at a younger age as you were beginning to really get into this dissociative period of your life? You know, I don't know because, and I'm going to say I don't know because the circumstances of this conversation are so drastically different than the reality that I grew up in. And so, you know, uh, immediately the thought comes to mind of, you know, what are the parameters of safety that you can give a child to freely explore who they are? Excuse me. I think that's probably most important because I'll, I'll tell you this, Jason, the most dangerous place in my world as a kid was my house. And so to be able to look at understanding, here's what I think. Like if I, if I have the opportunity, if, I, if someone were to take me and, and bring me and integrate them into my family, it would just, I would try to honor whatever it was that they needed or asked for and let them understand that they have agency. But I will also like, you know, signs, I mean, you know, are they freaking out over nothing, right? Are they in this position where they're violent? Are they, um, you know, getting in trouble in school over stuff that makes no sense? Are they hiding things, right? I would hide stuff all the time and just be like food. I would hide food in my room and be like, yo, one day I'll need that. You know, I'd hide clothes. I would do all those things. And so I think if you can give a child safety first and then give them the space to explore that safety, because they're going to push you, Jason, I'm sure you know this, they're going to push the parameters of what that means so they can find out, right? But but giving them the ability to do that while not destroying them emotionally, because they've already gone through that, right? And instead of belittling them or shaming them or whatever, because look, ain't nobody perfect. I, I get it. Even people who are foster parents trying to do their best, y'all going to fuck up too. Like, that's just how this is. You got to yeah. own that. You got to own that. And so, but in that, can you, can you do it in a way that is empathetic and loving and kind and, and letting, and talk like, like, here's the number one thing. Actually, here's my answer. Here's the number one thing. Talk to them. Keep it real. Kids are not stupid. They know exactly what's going on all the time. And you talk to them like they're toddlers, but they're 12 years old or they're eight. And you try to keep them safe in a world that they've already experienced is not safe. Don't lie to them. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't bullshit them because they're going to find out. And when they find out, guess what? Now you've broken their trust. Right. And so I, I think, I mean, it's a complicated answer, dude. I don't have a simple answer for it other than just do your best to like, keep it real and to give them safety and, and when they make mistakes to not destroy them, but instead talk through what happened because they may be able to make meaning in that moment about why they did it. Cause kids will always go, well, I don't know. Why did you do, why did you set the house on fire? I don't know. Well, the reason why maybe it's because they were sad. Maybe it's because they wanted attention. Maybe it's because you haven't talked to them in a week. You know what I mean? I mean, I hope none of your kids are setting your house on fire, but you get my point, right? And so I, I think it really is. I, I think communication and giving them the space to freely exist as who they are is the best way that they're going to get reintegrated. One of my friends, um, Lindsay, runs a company called Generation Wellness, and they teach children in schools 
um, yoga practices, meditation practices, integration practices. I would argue that she's a far better person to have that conversation with than me, just because she's in it as a former teacher and a person who trains teachers in this space. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, I wish I had a more succinct answer for you, man, but I don't. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is that if you've been a foster parent or around kids and trauma very long, you're going to find out there's not a lot of straightforward, succinct answers. The mathematical principles do not always apply here because yeah. there's a wild card somewhere in that history that, that you don't know. Yep. You know, I, you know, some of the stories we've heard from some of the people we know, you know, I'm in a, in a dad's group and I mentioned this on the podcast a lot. Um, but one of the things that I find interesting in there is that this is a place where, where men are actually vulnerable and the number of men who have been through things like like porn addictions and so often porn addictions that began as sexual abuse as a child mm-hmm. that they don't talk about anywhere else. And until they got there, really, some of them, one particular guy tells me, call me one day. I've known this dude for a while. Like me, me and him are, are, are pretty, pretty good friends. And then he's like, dude, like I've always known this story. I've always, it's always been in the back of my mind. I've always hidden it from myself. I always kind of knew this was true, but I never thought about it. But my mom came across a journal that I had when I was however old, and it detailed out the abuse that he went through at the hands of a family member mm-hmm. who was also a clergyman. And he's like, you know, like I've known this, but like I, I didn't really remember it. And th- these are the things that, that's going on in just the average guy that, that you meet who wasn't necessarily a kid who was who was taken from his family, who was put into foster care or adopted. How many more struggles are hiding in the background of a kid who's been through those things that were bad enough that the state felt the need to step in and mm-hmm. pull back? You know, so yeah, for sure. These there's parts of this in, in all of us. You know, we, we have these struggles and these hard parts, hard places everywhere. And these kids that are coming into our houses oftentimes have got way more stories than we understand. And sometimes I think what you said is so right. We talk to them like they're an eight-year-old because they're eight. But the Mm -hmm. truth is that eight-year-old has got more life experience than most 25-year-olds. Dude, when I was eight, I was 30. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was already cooking, full meals, cleaning, taking care of my brothers. Like, I was, was like, stealing stuff from people and selling it. Like, I was going door-to-door and knocking on people's doors and selling them candy bars and stuff. Like, man, when I was eight years old, I already lived, like, four lives. Yeah. And so it's really difficult to, to talk to those kids like they're eight because they're not eight anymore. Yeah. As I would think eight. you were stupid. Real talk. If you talk to me like that as a kid, I would literally look at you and be like, you're stupid. Because I've already I've already done these things. I already lived this stuff. Like I, I'll never I was such a bad student because these teachers were teaching me stuff. Even as in elementary school, I'd be like, this is not going to help me. Whatever you're talking about right now, this is not going to help me. And, and it was, it was only ever the teachers that could keep it real with me that I connected with. Right. And that's maybe a couple over the entirety of that and people in my life in general around that time. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's such a valid point. Like don't treat kids like they're dumb, especially who've gone through trauma because they've already seen humanity's truth. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't like the way you put that at all, but it's I don't like it because it's true. Humanity's truth. You know, these these are the stories that we try to sweep under the rug. These are the stories that we pretend do not exist. You know, mm-hmm. kids who have been physically, fe- uh, sexually, emotionally abused, kids who've, who've experienced neglect, 
kids who've been pushed out on their own and have had to become a 30-year-old at eight. We don't want to talk about that. And it's not until that we, we tell that story out loud that we can begin to do something about what we see in society every day. Mm-hmm. Because I don't care who you are, where you're listening from, within five miles of you, there's a kid who needs some help. Yeah, within your block, Absolutely. in your neighborhood, man. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and that's part of the reason why I do this. There's not a lot of people like me having this conversation, doing these things, and it's uncomfortable and it sucks. I don't even want this job, dude. But it's like, you know, you're, 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 you're sat with an option. This is what I think about a lot. Like, you're just sat with this option. You can sit here and go blame everybody else in the world, or you can take some accountability and create some change. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that foster parents do is they take some accountability and they go, Hey, I see my opportunity to help. Even if it's just one kid, right? Like that matters. There's a trickle down effect to that. And to, to be rendered silent, like I think is awful and unfortunate. And my, my hope is more people will talk about this because it's not going to go away. I mean, think about this. It's so crazy to me. So I live in America, right? And in this country, you will do more time in prison for kicking a dog than you will beating the shit out of a kid. How does that make sense? And I'm not obviously condoning any type of abuse, but I'm just making a point, right? It's the elephant in the room of mental health care. We're all impacted by it to some capacity And yet it's the one thing that swept under the rug every single day because everybody goes, well, you're a grown up now. Shouldn't you be over that? And I'm like, well, we're the sum total of all of our experiences leading up to this moment. Everything that's ever happened to us impacts us. Do you need to get over it? I don't know. Do you? Maybe you need to deal with it. Maybe you need to go to therapy for it and get a coach for it and read some books for it and change your life because it's destroying you. And I think if we can stop it, then we don't have to have this conversation and we can be obsolete, right? But you know, that's going to take a lifetime. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't know your personal beliefs, but for me, I believe that that I was put on this earth, in this place, in this time, in this life for a reason. God had a job for me to do, and it's my job to figure out what that is and, and get about doing it. And that has created a, a purpose statement in my life. I know why I'm here now. Yeah. I have a reason for existing. Uh, what what is your reason for being here? What, why are you here? Yeah. I mean, I get that, man. You know, I, I, I was reading once that when you're at your lowest, you should be of service and, you know, coming out of my mid twenties and starting to head into what's next in my life. I just felt so low. I felt so, I mean, I don't even have the words for it, but I was like, maybe if I just put this blog into the world, it will matter one day. That's it. That's all I ever thought. And my mission is very simple. I want to end generational trauma in my lifetime. That's it. It's impractical. It's impossible. It's unfeasible. It's stupid, but that ain't going to stop me. Right. And that's why I'm here. Like this is this company and this business require all my time, effort, energy, money. It's a, it's a break even at best. And it's about empowering people with the tools to create change in their life. Because ultimately the reality is you know, we, we go in through school and society and especially live in America. Nobody teaches you how to actually live. Nobody actually teaches you the things that matter. And so I think to myself, if we can 
if we can empower people with the knowledge to end the cycle of abuse, then on a long enough timeline, I can make myself obsolete and I can get to the point where people will pick up a book like Think Unbroken or the podcast will come by and they'll be like, why would you ever listen to that? Nobody hits children. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's the goal. Is it going to happen in my lifetime? Probably not, but I'm not going to stop. Well, that's exactly what I was looking for because I think we're all here on this earth with a reason. God put us here for, with a purpose, and your purpose seems almost as unattainable as mine, um, maybe even a little more so, and just as important, just as absolutely important to try. Yeah, and I think what's really important for people also is to recognize like you don't, people will get caught up and they'll hear something like this and they'll go, well, you know, does that mean I have to start a podcast or does that mean that I have to, you know, write a book or go and speak on these stages or travel the world? No, no. It means maybe you can impact change in your own community. Maybe you can show up where you live. Maybe you can take care of something where you are most approximate, right? You don't, you don't have to have a giant stage to change the world. You just have to have a voice. You know, and that's one of those things that, that Amanda and I have come across is, is that idea that, yeah, because a number of people have looked at us and said, you can't save them all. You know, we've had, we're somewhere around kid number 30 in our house, I think. Is that about right? Yeah, right about yeah. 30. And, and, and somebody has many times told us, you can't save them all. But, but you have to realize that for that one, you can change everything in their life. And that's part of part of what I've learned in that dad's group is the idea that that I'm going to leave a legacy behind me. Amanda will leave a legacy behind her. You will leave a legacy behind you. You don't get to choose that. That will be done. Mm-hmm. You get to choose what it looks like, though. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. can't save them all, but we can save as many as we can. Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Make a choice. And like, look, when people try to limit you like that, First thing I think to myself is like, your opinion of me has nothing to do with me. You know, any people always tell you what you can't do. I don't listen to people who don't do what I want to do. I don't, I don't get aligned with those people. You want to naysay, you want to limit me. You want to tell me what's not possible. You're the first person I'm removing from my life. Don't tell me what I can't do. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's so many people that tell me how crazy we are and you shouldn't have that many kids. And I had a lady in the grocery store tell me one day that my baby maker should be taken out. I'm like, honey, you have no idea of what you're talking about here. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even entertain those people because it's Jay-Z has one of my favorite quotes of all time. He goes, never argue with a fool because from a distance, people can't tell who is who. Yeah. Jay-Z had a, quite a few interesting lines over the years, didn't he? Yeah, he sure has. <laughs> I like that one, though, because it's it's so true. And I, I have the same conversation with, with my kids over the, the years. Hey, are, are you arguing with a three-year-old? Do you realize you can't win an argument with a three-year-old? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you can't just try it sometime. You just try and have that argument over, over Santa Claus with a three-year-old and then you're going to lose. I'm sorry, you just are. And you have to realize when you're talking to an adult who mentally is is still that three-year-old. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, Michael, it's been a great conversation to have with you here today. Um, how can people get a hold of you and find you, your website, um, where they can find you on socials, your podcast, all that important stuff? Yeah, it's simple. I'm everywhere on everywhere at Michael Unbroken. Uh, you can just check out the Think Unbroken podcast or go to thinkunbrokenpodcast.com. 
All right. Well, I appreciate that. We'll make sure that we get all that linked up in the show notes because uh, I think you have a story that there's a lot of people who need to hear, not just the people who, who have a lot of work left to do in their life, maybe who who walked a similar path to you, but people like Amanda and I who, who came down a totally different path and we're looking at trying to help kids. And we there's a lot of it that we just can't understand. You know, I, I, I would imagine you would agree that that no one could have understood you as a kid. Yeah. I didn't even understand me as a kid. Yeah. And, and so we, we need all the help we can get to walk through these journeys with these kids who've been through hard places and hard times. And most of it, nobody ever understood how much, how much you had been through, I'm certain, at that time in your life. Yeah. Well, and, look, and also, you know, growing up in the, the 80s and 90s, it was a different world, man. Like you could walk around with bruises on you and nobody would bat an eye. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that things are starting to change. Oh yeah. Yeah. I took a, took one of our sons a couple of years back to the, to the ER because he had what was broken a leg. Was ankle. it an ankle? Yeah. And he was jumping on a trampoline and, uh, landed the wrong way and broke his ankle. And I cannot tell you how many nurses came over in the ER waiting room to say, Oh, buddy, what happened? How did that happen? And about the 12th one in, I'm like, okay, I get it. Y'all are making sure he didn't get abused here. Mm-hmm. It was a trampoline for crying out loud. Maybe that's the reason why I keep telling you no to trampolines. I'm, I'm a little bit a little bit <laughs> damaged in, in that PTSD experience. PTSD with trampolines. But, <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that's something that, that is big now. You know, there are mandated reporters now that take that job seriously much more so than there was in 1980 or 1990-something. That was... Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I, I fell through the cracks. I, I should have been moved. I should not have been in my home, but nobody took the time to see me. Yep. That's how it is, unfortunately. And stories like yours help parents like us be able to sit back and realize that, hey, there's more to this story that we can maybe see and understand and find a way to talk to these kids and help them walk their journey. Well, it's a pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity, my friend. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Michael's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.